see him in the flesh and blood come in the morning. And I look so much better on TV. (laughs) You know, that's, you know, always so much better. All right. (laughs) Anyone here for the very first time? We got a bunch of uh, old timers here. Okay. All right. Easy. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. If okay. You, if you are here for the first time, don't admit it. Because <laughs> yeah. John will You're make welcome. you do. He will make you do an interpretive dance. Yeah. And that's that's the way in on the class here. Right. You know. Well, we're we're glad to have you guys here. Let's uh, <laughs> let's open in prayer, and then we'll get David going. Lord. Oh, it's been a long day. We pray you'd quiet our hearts. Um, allow us to to listen and to hear and to understand and uh, may these may the truths of these uh, of what david's got before us tonight uh, may it find uh, deep places in our heart lord and uh, take root lord thank you for this night we want to uh, lift up taylor and marie yes. as yes. as they are mourning the passing of marie's mom uh, i pray you'd bring them great comfort uh, this week as they're Dealing with all, everything that has to do <laughs> this week, uh, it, with all the family and, and 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 preparations and whatnot. So, thank you for this time. Prepare us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Hey, uh, let's look over at Romans chapter twelve, beginning around uh, verse fourteen, and in your study guide, that's on page fourteen. Incidentally, so. Uh, we we have enough uh, you know liberty built into the schedule where even though we missed last wednesday due to um uh, reportedly inclement weather um <laughs> uh the uh, uh we'll be fine schedule wise so no no worries there um but here in in romans what we want to do is notice again that Paul is dealing in this section with the shape of a transformed life. What does a new life look like? The lifestyle of the kingdom for the Christian. So we've talked about offered bodies, renewed minds, that on the basis of the indicatives of the gospel, that we are in Christ and that we belong to him, we're in union with him, and what is his is ours. Now, on that basis, how do we live out the imperatives of the gospel? What does that look like? How do we live in this world for Jesus? Paul begins that issue of what does a transformed life look like by talking about transformation of life in terms of the Christian community. This is what it looks like to live in a body of believers. And that's right the way down through verse 13. But in the original text, starting at about verse 14, there's a change in the grammar. There's a change in syntax and rhythm that takes place. You'll you'll notice it more if you read it out loud. Uh, It doesn't come through quite as strongly in English as it does in the original text. Uh, but it's there, and you can feel it, a little bit of it. If you if you look, for instance, at verse 9, 9 through 13, the kind of close of that section on transformed life in the body, 
Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, and so on. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. There's a kind of rhetorical flourish to that, as though Paul's getting really kind of wound up. I always imagined at this point whoever his secretary was trying desperately to keep up as all of the words kept flowing out of Paul's mouth and he was writing them down. But then, beginning in verse 14, watch this change. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, associating with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And so on. What seems to occur here in this second section of Romans chapter 12 is that Paul is, in a certain sense, possibly reciting a body of known teaching on what it means to live as a Christian. Uh, This seems to be a collection of sayings which was used by perhaps Paul and others And as a kind of catechism for what it meant to follow Christ. And very interestingly, going right the way down through chapter 13, verse 9, the teaching that is in this is deeply rooted in Jesus' teaching in what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. So what you find is a direct correlation between these two bodies of teaching. Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. And in Jesus' teaching, Luke 6, 28, bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Matthew 5, 39, do not resist an evil person. Jesus goes on to say, uh, if someone's, if that evil person strikes you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Right? Turn the other cheek. But only once, you only have two, and you'll be quickly running out of cheeks, right? No, that's not quite the way he goes at it. But then verse 18, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Romans chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a quote from Proverbs 25. Matthew 5, verse 44. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Romans 13, 7 on uh, the always popular subject of taxes, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And in Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel, um, uh, much to the consternation of many, when Jesus was asked whether or not it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and of course, to God what is God's. Romans 13, verse 8, 
He speaks about, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. And love the Lord your God with all of your uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so on. And your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22, 37. And then look at Romans 13, verse 8. Um, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, what's interesting about this is that Paul's ethical instruction for a transformed life is, is echoing Jesus' teaching. Now, what's interesting about that? Well, there's a number of things, but let's just think about a couple. First of all, Paul's writing this in around 55 AD. The earliest gospels, most scholars would say, are probably written a few years later, around 60 or so. So what does that tell us? And Mark would probably be the earliest of them all. What that tells us is that within the early Christian communities, there was a known body of teaching, of sayings of Jesus. These were used in the early Christian church, and they become part of the permanent inheritance of the church in the Gospels themselves. But here's an interesting case where the apostles are taking the teaching of Jesus, even before it is written in the Gospels, and using it to catechize the ancient Christian church. So that's a very important thing. Some of the sayings of Jesus, for instance, don't even show up in the Gospels. Like here's one from Acts. It is more blessed to, see if you can finish this one, it is more blessed to than to receive. That's as, as Jesus says, it says in the book of Acts, but it's nowhere in the Gospel. So these are one of the, that's one of the sayings of Jesus that's common among the apostles, though it doesn't occur in the Gospels. Now everything here occurs in the Gospels, but it seems to have been gathered together, again, in a kind of ancient catechism to teach people what to believe. Here's a second reason that's important. Sometimes you'll run into forms of Christian teaching that say Christians don't really need to pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, probably many of you would go, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. But some of you might think, well, well, yeah, actually, I've heard people say something like that. Like, well, the Sermon on the Mount was really for the Jews, and uh, this kind of ethical instruction that Jesus is giving there is not really binding. It's not the kind of thing which Christians need to pay a lot of attention to. But in fact, in fact, it is the basis of Paul's instruction for what a transformed life looks like. So Romans 12 through 14, as John Stott has noted, appears to be, in fact, this whole section, a summary of Jesus' ethical teaching. So when you think about living as a believer, one of the things we want to note is how Paul very, very carefully picks up this body of instruction, which is rooted in Jesus' teaching, which is then reproduced in the Gospels, written for, for, for our instruction. And he says, this is what a new life looks like. This is, the way, this is the way this life looks. And that's related, too, to the law. And we'll get more involved in that, but in chapter 13. Um, let's look at, at it. Just we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this more in depth, but I, I do want to say something about this at this point. Um, verse 8. 
He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, is, is in saying that, does that, does that mean that, that Paul says that none of these commandments apply? In other words, if, you, if you're loving, then the, the law is to love people. You don't have to worry about the commandments. Is that the point? No. What he's saying is what love looks like, love for your neighbor, is obedience to the law of God. Now, some people, and this circles back, those of you who are maybe just joining us this semester, to studies that we've already done in Romans 7 and Romans, well, 6 as well, and chapter 8, where Paul talks about the relationship of the believer to the law. So I just want to, I just want to make mention of that in passing, say a little bit more about it next week. The Westminster Confession uh, makes a very clear, make, does a really good job with this, by the way. Uh, there's a shocker, I know. Um, but when it, when it talks about the, the, the law of God in the life of a believer. And it makes a distinction between three kinds of law and three uses of the law. So the three kinds of law, moral law, that's, that's one aspect or kind of God's law, right? There's the ceremonial law, and then there is the judicial law law, which was for Israel in its particular historical setting. So what do we mean by the moral law? What's meant by that? Well, God has always had a law for his people to follow. Here is what life looks like. Uh, To Adam, it was, you can eat everything, just don't eat at that restaurant. Okay. But of course, as soon as, soon as he could, he went to Sonic. So there you go. All right. He went to the drive-thru. So that was a problem. So the Ten Commandments are summary commandments of the law. That's God's moral law. They're not new commandments. They're summary statements of what has always been holiness. And uh, they are not done away with. Jesus said, don't think I came to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, somebody said, well, he fulfilled it, so it doesn't exist anymore. No. He says, woe to those who take anything away from the law. So you can't take it away. So the moral law of God very clearly is stated for all time. It was true prior to its issuing, and it's true forever. And these are summary statements of moral law. Here's, here's one. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. So that means fornication is all right. Yes? No. All right. Well, it doesn't say fornication there. But, of course, what's included in that commandment is all those matters which are related to sexual purity. Because those are summary statements of the law. So what Paul's saying here in Romans 13, in mirroring what Jesus says in his teaching on the commandments... Uh, taking up that one, he says, just because Jesus teaching uh, says, even if you don't do it outwardly, if you do it in your heart, then what? 
then you've done it. Then you've broken that commandment. So Jesus deals not only with the externals of things, he deals with the internal issues as well. And Paul deals with an internal issue here. He says, the internal and the external are connected. If you love your neighbor, you won't bear false witness against him. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from your neighbor. Love leads to a place of obedience. If you love God, you're going to want to obey him. All right, so there's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law, which had to do with the rites and sacrifices of of the old covenant. Prescriptions about how worship is to be conducted and sacrifices are supposed to be presented and so on. So I'll ask you a trick question. Those of you who've been in this study for a couple of years will not be tricked. Do you, do you need a lamb for your sins? And what's the right answer? Yes, and I have one. Right? The, the need for a lamb's blood to forgive sin is true. But you don't need one because you don't have just a lamb. You have what? The lamb. And that sacrifice fulfills that commandment once and for all. It's the perfect sacrifice. So the ceremonial law, the principle of it stands. The application of it has changed. It's completely fulfilled in Christ. Then there are Israel's judicial laws, which have to do with the organization of its social structure. Um, the principles of which are things we can learn from. But again, the application of it is not the same. Uh, if, if, you are, if you are the owner of a, a garden or a, a large field, a large plot, I suspect that you're really not too concerned about not harvesting all the way to the edge of your field so that people who are gleaning that you don't know could just come by and have some. Now, what's the principle, though, involved in that? The principle is care for who? Care for the needy. So that the principle, the, ap, the, the principle stands, but the application is different. So for the Christian, the moral law of God is something which is critical in our lives in terms of the look of a transformed life. But that reminds us of the three uses of the law. So if you take the moral law, And we talk about its three uses. The first thing is to expose our sin. The very first thing the moral law of God does, as soon as you hear one of God's laws, what does your heart do? Yeah, right? I mean, it's it's what happens when you see the policeman on the side of the road as you're driving by, right? If you're driving by and you see the policeman on the side of the road, the very first thing your heart does is not, I'm so glad that guy is there, right? What's the first thing you do? Check the speedometer. That's what you do. You tap the brakes. Now, because <laughs> you're going, oh man, am, am I okay? Because, all right, so the very first thing the law does is it exposes who we are and drives us to Christ, our need for a savior. That's, a, a, that's the mercy of God to us, right? All right, so the second use of the law is it's a restraining influence. When we, when we look at the penalties associated with the law, we go, oh my, those are, those are, severe. Those are serious. It turns out that the wages of sin is death. Can I ask you a question? Are the wages of sin still death? Well, yes, they are. And so when we look at the penalties that are associated with the law, we go, I think it'd be better to obey God and we learn wisdom. Now, the third 
use of the law is that it is a guide then to holy living for the Christian. It's, do you want to know what it looks like to be a Christian? Well, here you go. Honor the Lord your God uh, and serve him only. He's the only God that you should, you should worship. Take the Lord's name in vain. No, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, all of these commandments are used by the apostles to teach us what a new life looks like. We looked last semester when we were talking about this in Romans uh, uh, 8. Well, maybe that's a year ago now. Oh, my gosh, it's all going together here. Um, we looked at Ephesians. Now, in, in Ephesians, where Paul, in the second half, starting in chapter 4, starts saying, here's what a new life looks like. If you look at it from Ephesians 4 through 6, he goes through quoting the, the Ten Commandments. Ending in chapter 6 with every parent's favorite commandment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you on the earth and your life may be long. Okay, so so if, if, if Paul says, this is what the commandment teaches and so you should obey it, do you look at Paul and say, Paul, you're a legalist? Well, no. But if Paul said you're made right with God by obeying the law, then what? That, you see, would be a problem. The law cannot make us right with God, but having been made right with God through the righteousness of Jesus, the law does show us what holiness looks like, what a transformed life looks like. So the law is no longer your accuser. The law is a guide that shows us what new life looks like when it's lived in authentic love. That's why the apostles show these commandments. And when you realize that, when you realize, okay, the law is no longer my accuser, the law now shows me what love looks like on a day-to-day basis, then you can say with David in the Psalms, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. See, typically we don't love the law. We don't. And part of that is because we're Americans. And we're trying to always get around rules. We don't like rules. We don't like people telling us what to do. We know there is a de jure speed limit and a de facto speed limit, a posted limit and a real limit. And we tend to spend our lives trying to figure out exactly where it is. I know it says 55. I wonder what the real limit is. Probably 78, something like that. You know, that's, we sort of put it there, you know. I love being in Texas or Montana where the speed limit in places is 85. That seems perfect to me, you know, in most cases. So, but we are, we're always kind of looking for how, how we can kind of get around, scoot around the rules and so on. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. But the law exposes our hearts and teaches us that we need a savior points to who the Savior is through the sacrificial system. And then Jesus fulfills all of that and he comes and he bears the penalty that the law required and he counts his righteousness to us. And then the apostles take Jesus' teaching and they apply it to our lives and say, here is what a new life looks like. So what happens in this text in Romans 12 and 13 is this. The attitude... 
that is cultivated in the church relationship, the body of Christ with each other, is to carry over into our attitude in society outside the church. Look at verse 16, Romans 12. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. All right, so Paul has already been telling the Roman believers not to be arrogant towards each other. Now he's saying, don't be haughty with anyone. Always associate with the lowly. So in dealing with culture outside the church, living in harmony with each other, weeping with those who weep, these admonitions are listed side by side with do what is honorable in the sight of all people. So in other words... Our life as believers is a witness to those outside the church. We have a role to play bearing witness to Christ in the way we conduct ourselves in the world. Now here we need to pause for just a second. And we need to remember something. The people that are getting this instruction are a very small minority group of people in the world's first megacity, Rome. Over a million people. How many of Rome's population were Christians? Well, very, very few. Very few. And with only a couple of exceptions, they didn't have influence. They didn't have power. These were not people with wealth. These were not people with access to political corridors of power. There are a couple of exceptions to that we can see, especially in Romans 16. But generally speaking, we know historically that most of the ancient Christians in Rome were actually what? What was their standing sociologically? Most of them, slaves. In fact, one of their slaves, Clement, will later... Decades after this letter, about three, well, four decades after this letter, he will be the pastor of the church in Rome and he will pastor the man who used to own him. Right? So this is, this is a small minority group of people. This is a people that are, from a sociological standpoint, marginal and weak. This is not a majority religion. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because they didn't view their, their life in Rome as we're here to change the politics of Rome. We're here to, we're here to make sure Rome runs right. Now see, if you're, if, if, if you're concerned about making Rome run right, that means you're in charge. That means you have a majority. But that's not who these people were. Their sole way of influencing the world around them was by the conduct of their lives, by the demonstration of their character. Now, as Christians today, in a culture which is sometimes hostile to the faith, and perhaps in some places increasingly so, in uh, in the secularizing West, Christians are much more aware sometimes now of the fact that 
they are in increasingly minority positions. Sometimes there's a hostile, uh, hostile attitude to the faith and to the church in general, and perhaps to you as a believer. If you hold to biblical ethics, you won't necessarily be met with joy by all parties. So Christians tend to take a couple of different responses to that. They tend to one of a couple of extremes, and there's some places along the way on this, but one extreme is, is domination. We want to take over the culture. If we could just get our hands on the levers of power, then we can hold things and we can be the ones who keep society together and life will be easier for us. All right, that's domination. Well, the problem with that is if you are only trying to get your hands on the levers of power, how do your, how do, how do the people who don't agree with you view that? They view that as a threat to them. So that's very difficult in terms of, it's very difficult to share the gospel with somebody who thinks you are a threat to them. Now at the other end of the spectrum is a kind of neo-Amish approach, which is isolationism. So there's domination and isolation. Well, there's no hope for any kind of influence in the world. We should just pull back kind of us for no more. We'll have our little community together. We know what we believe. We know what we think. And we'll just kind of huddle together here and hope for the rapture by next Tuesday. Okay. Neither extreme, domination or isolation, is how these early Christians went into Rome. They went in... Here's my word for the early Christians with insulation and infiltration. They infiltrated the city where they lived, doing their work, carrying on with what they did, living their lives, insulated against a hostile culture through the power of the Holy Spirit so that they were not, remember how Romans 12 starts, don't be conformed to this age, but be what? transformed. All right. So you're, we're, we're not going to be converted to the values of the prevailing culture. We are insulated against that through the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. And, but we're not going to isolate ourselves. We're going to infiltrate that culture with the power of the gospel. Now, infiltration and insulation are neither isolation or domination. And if you infiltrate the world, you become a joyful culture warrior. You're a happy warrior because you exist in the world to bear witness to Jesus and his love and his mercy, sharing that with others. Now, not everyone will always rejoice in your witness. Many will want you to conform to the spirit of the age, but you will have to keep coming back saying, no, I'm not going to be conformed to the world. Well, what does that look like? Well, it means that our life in the world is rooted in humility. We associate with the the lowly and we reject a proud and haughty mind. That's not where we're going to live. Paul goes on then to say, don't pay back evil for evil as you live in this world. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Be at peace with all men. And this includes those who you may want to take revenge against. Look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, that, that's a very interesting passage. And here's what we learn. The desire for justice, the impulse, if you will, towards vengeance for evil is not ungodly. Sometimes people think the desire for revenge, for justice, is bad. It isn't. What's bad? Taking it on yourself. I will be the agent of the vengeance. Paul doesn't say that justice and revenge are bad. He says what? Leave that to God. Who, by the way, has a much bigger arsenal than you when it comes to doling out justice? Now, what's your task in the middle of being mistreated, possibly even being violated in terrible ways? Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So a fellow pastor friend of mine in another city uh, wrote me two days ago. And he said, please pray for me. A group of protesters are going to be gathering outside of our church this Sunday morning. To be protesting out there with signs. Okay, let's just talk about that for a second, because that could happen at any point. could happen here one Sunday. All right, what are we going to do on the Sunday morning protest? Call the police, I guess, and have them all hauled off. No, no, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to invite them in, and if they won't come in, we're going to, what are we going to do with the coffee? Eh, we're taking the coffee out to them. Yeah, we'll bring them coffee, we'll, we'll, we'll go get some extra donuts, whatever. We might stand with them. If they're protesting against us, we would say, you don't really know the half of it. You can't imagine how bad we are. We're about to go in and say again how bad we are. If you'd like to come in and hear it, we'll, you, could, you could listen along. I mean, we're really bad. Okay, so... <laughs> now, now, see, uh, and by the way, they handled that with, over the weekend with great wisdom and that kind of joyous response, gospel-oriented response to, to people. So that's, a, that's, a, that's the Christian ethic. You see that, don't you? In, in a situation like uh, what happened in Charleston at Mother Emanuel Church, where a person motivated by racialist hatred walks into a Wednesday night Bible study, just like we're gathered here, and he begins to kill people who are African-American simply because he hates African-American people. And what's their response? What's their response? Well, they go to the court when he makes his appearance, and they preach the gospel to them, to the man. And they, they tell him they forgive him. And all of the country just stands and looks at that in wonder. Now, does that mean that justice is not done? No, justice is still done because justice at the hands of the civil authority is something which must still be carried out. And Paul begins to talk about that next. But the, but the attitude of the Christian, the attitude of the Christian is to bless those who curse us and to do good to those who want to bring us harm, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Now that's easy, isn't it? 
You know what? Sometimes that might be harder than any of the commandments that I mentioned earlier. Why do we do it? Why are we called this way? Well, it's because of our Savior, who when he's hanging on the cross, looks at those who nailed him up and says, Father, forgive them. Right. So we're following in the footsteps of Jesus with this spirit that entrusts revenge, justice to God, and does not take it into its own hands, and seeks for the good of the person who is even bringing the violence. If you um, look at the experience of the church in China currently, um, one pastor wrote a lengthy letter about this to his congregation a few weeks before he was arrested, knowing he would be arrested. And he said, he said, I love my people who will be arresting me. And if I'm arrested, if in God's plan, I have the opportunity to preach Christ to them by being arrested, then I embrace it with joy. My greatest concern is the eternal destiny of my captors. See, that's a completely different mentality, a completely different way to live. So there is a difference between the duty of private citizens who are Christians and the duty of public servants who are ordained by God to carry out acts of justice and vengeance. So those things God uses, those people God uses to carry out justice, the judge and the jury and so on, they carry out the deeds of justice. We don't take it up ourselves. We consider our primary, our primary objective to bear witness to Christ in the world. And this is true across the board. We exist in the world as servants. This must always be our primary concern. Um, so that we're here as those who are looking for the good of the gospel and the work of the gospel in others' lives. Now, I saw this remarkably on display in the life of a friend of mine back when I was pastoring in Kentucky many years ago. And her name was Phyllis. Uh, Phyllis, a member of our church, uh, had a daughter. She had a few daughters, but her, this one daughter in particular had herself twin daughters, one of whom was born with serious birth defects. That daughter died about a year and a half after birth. So we do the, we do the burial and so on. So, so now Phyllis's daughter has one daughter remaining, a little girl. And Phyllis's daughter is working the late shift and she's driving home about one in the morning after getting off and she's hit head on by a drunk driver and killed instantly. So the one remaining little girl is left and she is going to be raised by her grandmother now, Phyllis. Phyllis will have responsibility for her. So, of course, you're dealing with the tragedy of a lost child who's already died, a mother who's been killed in a violent collision, and, and just the, a lot of suffering and pain involved in these lives. And I remember sitting with Phyllis the next day at her house, and we were talking and praying and grieving and all the things that you do in these kinds of situations. And then we did something which normally doesn't occur. Phyllis got up. She got up to go. I said, Phyllis, where are you going now? Do you need to go over to the funeral home? And she said, no, I'm going over to the jail. And I said, why are you going to the jail? And she said, well, I'm going to see the man 
who was driving the car that killed my daughter. And I said, oh, well, do you have to give a statement or something like that? She goes, oh, no, 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 no. She said, um, because he was at jail, not the hospital. He'd come through with only relatively minor, you know, bumps and bruises and was just, you know, there at the jail. And she said, no, no. She said, I'm going over to share Jesus with him. She said, you know, he has a wife and he has a couple of children and his life is now ruined for years to come. And if there's anybody right now who needs Jesus, it's that man. And I think I'm the one to go share Jesus with him. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at Phyllis and I'm, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at a Christian. She was just looking at a pastor. Pastors and Christians are not always the same thing. But (laughs) there's a difference. But I was looking at a Christian. She was concerned for the soul of the man whose drunkenness resulted in the death of her daughter and that she would spend the rest of her life raising this little girl. And she's raised her well. So these are the kinds of things that as Christians we take seriously and the world does not understand. And we leave vengeance to God. So God's vengeance is something which we do not take up unless, of course, we are in a particular position to do so. So if you look at chapter 13 now, he begins to take up how governing authorities work versus private persons. Our responsibility, again, in the world, again, remember, this is a very small minority Christian community in this megacity, and the, the emperor is Nero. Now, what do you know about Nero? One of the, one of the real good ones. Right? No. So this is, an, this is a man who's the emperor who is really, from an historical standpoint, according to Roman historians, like Suetonius, insane. Insane. And within eight years of Paul writing this letter to Rome, we'll look at the growing Christian community and identify them as a scapegoat and launch a violent persecution against them. So when Paul talks about governing authorities, he's not talking about just some some person in a political party you don't like. He's talking about one of the most wicked and horrid rulers of the ancient world. So we need to bear that in mind. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of the policeman by the side of the road? Drive the speed limit. Oh, that's the living Bible. Okay, there we go. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, that brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, 
Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's just about everybody's favorite seven verses in in the New Testament right there. Mostly because it encourages us to pay our taxes. Now 